Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you don't, I would love for you to take one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you and open it to John 7. We'll also have it on the screen as a convenience for you, but I think there's just something really powerful about having your own copy of God's Word in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible in front of you as our, as our gift to you. This is our last Sunday in John 7. We finished John 7 all the way through verse 52 last Sunday as a kind of overarching narrative, but I said that we had a little bit more work to do in a few verses in verses 37 through 39, which we're going to look at today, which is one of the more famous verses in the Gospel of John. And it's this incredible, beautiful, glorious call of Jesus in the middle of this feast that we'll get to in just a moment. But as you're finding John 7, let me just share with you a thought I had while we were, while we were singing. Uh, there is just kind of a fog that exists in all of our minds, especially it seems like on Sunday mornings. And in my mind as well, we come in and we think, and in the middle of a song, I think it was the second song after Jeremy read the scripture from Psalm 145, my mind was just going a million different places. I was looking at somebody and thinking about somebody else that I hadn't seen in a while, and pastorally I was concerned, wondering. I was thinking about a conversation that I had earlier this morning about a person, and I'm wondering how that's going to go. And then I was thinking about just getting up and preaching, and I've been doing this now here in this pulpit since we started this church 16 and a half years ago, but I still get a little anxious every time I get up in front of you, I I want it to go well, thinking about whether or not I have anything helpful to say for these people that have come to hear God's word. And in the middle of just that fog of just kind of squirrely thoughts, you know, just bing, 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 all over the place. I just thought, you know, what I need most and what you need most is to just see Jesus. There's this scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So here's our goal this morning. Here's what I hope happens for me and for you is that through all of the things that we're thinking about, and, and we, are, we are kind of like a society of assessors. We're assessing, you know, did, did I like that song? Did, is this person all that I want them to be? Is this church this or that? Is Brad, am, am I all that I need to be? What, what are people thinking of me? All, all these things, we come in and we're just a, a, a mysterious combination of convoluted motivations. And in all of that, I just want to behold Jesus. I want to see him. That's my only hope for change this morning. That's your only hope for change this morning. So before I read the scripture, let me pray to that end. Lord, let us see Jesus. We need to see him. We need to heed what he says to us in this text. 
And we need to be transformed by it, whether unto salvation for the first time or unto continuing sanctification if we already know him. Do your work through your word, by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 37 through 39, and if you're visiting with us for the first time, this is just our practice to work through books of the Bible. We're working through the Gospel of John, and here we find ourselves in John 7. Let me read the text and then do a little explanation, and then I have four questions to ask us to help us understand this text. On the last day of the feast, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which we'll explain in just a second, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, a little context about this Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. It was an Old Testament feast that through Moses, the law was given and there were specified feasts or think celebrations that Israel was to commemorate, to participate in every year as a kind of regular act of worship where they were doing something in particular in each of these feasts to worship God, to remember God, to give God glory. And this particular feast, which was prescribed by Moses through God, through Moses to the people of God to be uh, remembered every year is described for us in a little bit of detail in Leviticus chapter 3 primarily, Leviticus chapter 23, which we won't take the time to read. But let me just summarize for you that this was a feast that was to happen during the, the fall time, uh, right around now in the Jewish calendar in the Old Testament. And it was a feast of also called ingathering. It was primarily to encourage the people of Israel to remember the Lord's provision for them in giving them and providing for them during their wanderings in the desert. So God had rescued the people of Israel from Egyptian captivity miraculously through the Red Sea in Exodus. He parted the Red Sea. God's people went across the sea. It then closed in on the chasing armies of Egypt. And then they were in the, across the Red Sea out of captivity. And it was, this is an amazing uh, text in the Old Testament, it says that they were a 12 days journey from where they were on the far side of the Red Sea to the promised land that God had promised to them centuries before to Abraham. And then we read the rest of the Old Testament where that 12 day journey took Israel 40 years because they did the ultimate zigzag of disobedience in the desert. And during their 40 years of wandering in the desert, God provided for them. He provided food from heaven. He provided water from heaven. He provided crops for them as they were wandering around. And this Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths, was a commemoration of God's provision during their wanderings. And so what they were supposed to do, according to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 23, they were to take branches like palm branches, and they were to make like 
you know, temporary living structures, little huts. Think of them as like little grass huts that they were to live in for the duration of this feast, which was a week, as a way of remembering that they were wandering in the desert in a kind of temporary place with God. Now, what's beautiful about this Old Testament feast is that that temporary nature of their wandering is, is, is commemorated by this word tabernacle, that the Lord was with them even in their wanderings in the desert, which is exactly what John, the gospel writer, says about the mission of Jesus in John chapter 1, using the same word, that Jesus came to tabernacle. He came to dwell with us, which literally means that he pitched his tent with us here in this desert that we are still wandering in after he has rescued us from sin. And so this Old Testament feast is in a way pointing to Jesus. And here's another really remarkable thing is that Jesus is standing up on this great day. And note what Jesus is saying in the middle of this feast. He's saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And we'll get into that in just a second. But one of the things that they would do in this feast, not only to commemorate God's provision in the wanderings through the desert and the temporary nature of their life there during those wandering years, but also there was this festival, there was this part of the feast where they would take water from the pool of Shalom that we read about in John chapter 5, and then they would pour it onto the ground there at the feast. And it was called this, this libation service, where they would pour the water onto the ground. And what was this, what was this remembering? What was this hearkening back to? It was hearkening back to this time of wandering in the desert when the people were without water, when they were grumbling. In fact, in Numbers chapter 20, the people are grumbling in the desert. They're upset at Moses. Nobody's happy. Man, 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 wine, wine, wine. They get up. Man, we should, we should have stayed in Egypt, Moses. Why did you bring us here? There's no water. There's no food. It's hot. And this is just miserable. And Moses goes to God and he said, what should I do with these people? And God tells Moses, he says, speak to the rock. Notice the imagery here. He tells Moses, speak to the rock. This is Numbers chapter 20. And out of this rock will come water as a sign of God's provision. And Moses kind of does that, but sort of disobeys God. The next couple of verses, Moses stands before the people, and instead of merely speaking to the rock in total faith upon what God has told him to do, he takes his staff and he hits the rock, and even still God is gracious to him, and he causes water to mirac- miraculously come out of the rock. And oh, by the way, God says to Moses, well, because you didn't fully obey me, you're never going to enter the promised land. But nevertheless, water comes from the rock. And in this New Testament time in the first century, one of the things that the priests, the Jewish leaders would do in this festival is they would have some of their servants scoop up water from this pool and pour it on the ground in the middle of this feast while they had a choir sing from Isaiah chapter 12 verse 30, which says that you will draw from the wells of salvation in joy. And so Here's this religious ritual that has become just a kind of tradition that the people are doing in sort of a a kind of man-centered 
selfish observance of their own sort of religious sort of elitism, and yet, unwittingly, it's actually pointing to Christ, who is the rock of ages, who tabernacles with his people, who stands up in the middle of this feast and says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And with all that, well, I was excited about seeing that in the scriptures. I, apparently, you weren't asked. You see this symbolism? This isn't just Jesus just getting up in the middle of another party that they were commanded to do. There's all of these threads from the Old Testament that are just shouting out to the first century Jewish people saying, this is the one who is to come, the rock of ages, who will bring water in the desert, who's come to tabernacle with you, who alone can satisfy your thirst. And what does Jesus say? He says, let me read it again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. For Quick moving questions, I hope, to help us understand and apply what Jesus is saying here. First question, who's invited? Who's invited here to this invitation that Jesus gives? Well, I think the answer is really quite obvious. Just read the Bible on the surface and interpret it as it comes to you. Now, obviously, reading the Bible can get more complex than that as we need to let the Bible interpret itself. I understand there are difficult parts of the Bible to understand, but this is not one of them. Jesus answers it for us. If anyone thirsts, so who's invited? The thirsty one, anyone who's thirsty. He doesn't add any other condition on it. Not if you're from some particular school of learning in first century Judaism. Not if you're from Israel. You can be a Gentile. He opens it up to all of humanity, which is Jesus' mission to all who will come to him. Not people that have a particular theological understanding. Not people that come from a certain side of the tracks. Not people that have a certain level of intelligence. Not people that have a certain level of righteousness. Nothing. The only condition for those that are invited is anyone who is thirsty. Are you thirsty? That's the question. Now, we've spent a good amount of time in the Gospel of John up to this point talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and we should not budge from that one iota. Jesus says in John chapter 6 that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And that is absolutely true. God is sovereign over salvation. Nobody can come to the Father unless, nobody can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. That's true, John 6, 44. But here we have Jesus standing up in the middle of a crowd of mostly unbelievers inviting anyone who is thirsty. Question number two, who are they to come to? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus says. They are to come to Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. They're not to come to a religious system. They're not even primarily, let's put it in our context here in the 21st century, they're not to come to a church structure, a denomination. 
They're not to come to church membership, although that is important. I think if you're attending this church and you've been here for a while, I think you should consider joining this church because I think that there are all sorts of implications in the New Testament about how God intends to guard us and encourage us and make us accountable with other believers. We don't do that perfectly here, but we're striving to do that. I think there's all sorts of implications there in the New Testament. But here the primary call is that they are to come to Jesus. And and why should they come to Jesus? Because We've read up to this point in John that we are clear, and the Bible is clear, that all of us are guilty before God, and we will stand before him one day. And unless we are in Christ, unless we are trusting in him, we will be separated from him forever. And so we are coming to the one and the only one who can do something about that. We're coming to God in the flesh. We're coming to God himself, but yet God the Son, God the man in Christ Jesus. Listen to how Hebrews describes who we are to come to. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. I think these are some, I read these verses often. I think they're some of the most important verses in all of the New Testament. This is the description of Jesus in his humanity and in his incarnation. It says, therefore he, meaning Jesus the Son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or satisfaction or redemption or, or atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, this, the, these verses in many ways summarize the very essence of the Christian message. This is, in these two verses, is really the heart of the gospel. That God, the eternal, perfect God, the Son, became a man like us in every way, yet without sin. Now that's a great mystery. God, fully God, truly God, becomes fully man, truly man. And you say, Boy, there's some difficult things to understand in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. And this is maybe the greatest mystery of all, the incarnation. That God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has become a human just like us and has tasted everything that we taste, yet has endured it without sin. So, So think about that now. There is, I think, a kind of spiritual ploy of our enemy that wants to make us feel like we're the only person going through something and that nobody understands us. I think by nature, a lot of us, I know I am, this is confession time, I hope this is a safe place for me to do a little self-therapy, but I think this applies to many people in our culture. We like to think nobody quite has it like we do. And that becomes a very convenient excuse for then justifying why you aren't doing what you sort of innately know the Lord is calling you to do because nobody quite, I'm sort of the exception. And what this passage is saying to us is that he had to be made like us in every respect, yet without sin. This is a great mystery. How can Jesus face and feel and know and and in a sense endure every temptation that we have endured And yet without sin, in a sense, he's actually faced more than we have because he's taken that temptation all the way to the end and been victorious over it. 
And Jesus faces it, and that's who we're coming to. And, and what has this made Jesus? This hasn't made Jesus a religious curmudgeon. It's made him a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A Jesus who stands up in the middle of a feast, and he says to people who are racked with sin and all of these things pulling at their heart, all of these things in their mind, and he says to them, the thing, the only thing that will qualify you to come to me is your thirst, not your relative self-righteousness in this moment. And you're to come to me. And when you come to me, who you're coming to, you are coming to a merciful and faithful high priest who is representing you, thirsty one, to a sovereign, good, gracious God. And how does he represent us? He represent us, is, represents us not only by being merciful to us, but by taking the punishment for our sin. He actually doesn't just, he doesn't just be merciful with us and, and understand us and sympathize with us. He actually goes in our place before God. This is why he's so good and so gracious. He doesn't just say, God, I'm, I'm bringing Brad here. And, you know, Brad's done a lot of good things. I know, I know, back, remember August of 1992? It was a tough, tough month. But we can kind of overlook that because in the general aspect of his life, he's done sort of more good than bad. And, you know, he's been kind. And these last few years have been pretty decent, you know, overall. I know, God, I know, I remember. I remember May of 1989. I remember. I didn't want to bring that up, but I know you were. Uh, but here he is. Here he is, and you know, God, we're merciful. Father, we're gracious. We've written this Bible that talks about how our steadfast love endures forever, and our mercies are new every morning. And so because of that, let's just, let's just kind of overlook that bad phase of his life, or even kind of what maybe is going on right now. And let's just, you know, let's, let's let him in. Maybe the back door, but let's let him in. That is most people's default version of how they make it into eternity. And that is a damning false gospel. The mercy of God says that we come before him with our righteousness, which is as filthy rags that deserves God's just and right punishment forever because his nature is infinitely holy and even our sins, which we may consider not to be as bad as the other people around us, are not being compared to the people around us, but they're being compared to the righteousness and goodness of God that we have all rejected. And they rightly, the Bible's utterly clear about this, they rightly deserve not a wink and a shake of the etch-a-sketch, ah, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. They rightly deserve the judgment of God forever. But Jesus, in that moment, doesn't just say, He's been basically better than bad, better than his worst days. So let's let him in. Jesus says, no, Father, I have taken the punishment for this one's sins, and they are gone forever. I have, the word in Hebrews 2 is, I've propitiated them. I have absorbed. I've satisfied. I've taken away your condemnation. It is no more. Therefore, there is no condemnation for this one because he's not just with me. He's in me, and I'm in him. 
And that's who, we're, that's who we're coming to right now. Come on, right now, Christian, you who are racked with guilt and you somehow have nursed your past shame and you have somehow concocted this religious system in your heart where you are nursing your shame from some past and you are exalting it over the mercy of God, don't do that because Jesus has taken it as far as the east is from the west. And friends, you will go forever before you can find that thing and bring it to God and say, this thing is more powerful than what Jesus has done for me. So stop chasing it. We come to Jesus and he's our merciful and faithful high priest. Let me just say, if you're not yet a believer and maybe you've kind of considered yourself a Christian because you grew up in the Bible Belt South and you have, you've just never really heard that, what I just said to you, and it was a little overwhelming. You're like, oh my gosh, this is intense. When's this thing going to end? Friends, what you just heard is the gospel. God is holy. And all of us by nature are sinners in one way or another. And we all deserve the just judgment of God. And your only hope is to run to Jesus. To Jesus, who doesn't just put his arm around you and say things are going to get better, but he goes before you and lays down on the cross for you and takes the wrath of God and removes it and rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and now calls you, you right now, not to be a better person, not to try harder, but to turn away from yourself in your self-trust. That's called repentance. And to turn to him in trust and hope. That's called faith. That's what you need to do right now, and that's who you're coming to if you're coming to him, and that's the only hope that any person has. Question number three, what are they to do? Well, I've gotten ahead of myself a little bit, but you guys know I do that. What are they to do? Well, we've been talking about it. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Jesus is obviously speaking metaphorically here. What does Jesus mean by drinking? Not just mere mental assent. Not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God or the creator of the world or that the Bible is true or that God is triune or that eternity is forever. Friends, the Bible says in James that even the demons believe those things and tremble. It's not about a kind of factual mental ascent. What Jesus is calling these sinners to do here in the middle of this feast, which is actually all about him, is he's saying, I'm the living water. I'm the one who, if you will trust in me, will satisfy finally and fully your soul. I'm the one who has come to give you drink. So trust in me, lean in me, put your hope in me. We sang this song at the beginning the first song, and there's a few more stanzas to this song, or maybe it's a different version, but it's, I think, the same song, Come Ye Sinners. Listen to a few of the stanzas from this song. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. <laughs> Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Don't let your guilty conscience shut you out. Nor of the time in your future when you will 
you will try harder and you'll be ready and then you'll commit to serving the Lord. Listen, young people, um, high schoolers, college age, and this isn't just young people, it's all people, but I think this is particularly a spiritual trap of young people, this kind of you only live once, YOLO, this cultural phrase, it's wicked. And it's, in a sense, it's, it's true. You only live once, so serve the Lord today. But the way our culture appropriates that phrase is you only live once, so live it up, do what you want, and then when you get out of college or you get out of the army or you get out of whatever, then you can settle down and mature. Friends, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Don't dream of future spiritual fitness because it will not come. If the Lord calls you today, Hebrews 4 says, do not, do not hasten. Do not harden your hearts. All the fitness, all the preparation, the only thing he requires of you is to feel your need from him, to be thirsty. So what are you to do when you come to Jesus? Drink. And the fact that you are coming to him, the fact that you want him, the fact that this is even an impulse, I believe, is indication that the Holy Spirit is drawing you and he is giving you the gift of faith and repentance, which is the instinct, which means you need now to drink, to believe, to trust, to turn from yourself and to trust in him, to drink. To put your hope in him. That's what you're to do right now. To hope in him. And what are they promised? This is the fourth question. And what are they promised? When we come, the thirsty come, and they come to Jesus and they drink. You might think, well, gosh, man, finally, I've been chasing all of these. I've been drinking out of all these polluted faucets, all this dirty water I've been drinking. And I grew up, I grew up right on the <laughs> Mexican border. And um, the water wasn't always necessarily the best filtered water in the world. And it tasted good to me because that's all I would drink. We'd drink right out of the tap. And there was always this dispute between my hometown and the town right across the border about water filtration. And I went away to college um, and I started drinking pure water and it tasted bad to me, actually. I was like, man, what's this? And then I came back home after a semester being at college and I drank the tap water from the thriving metropolis of El Centro, California, and I just about spit it out. And that's, that's, that's the way we are. We drink this filthy water. But here's the deal is we, we think that, okay, I've drank now. I'm drinking Jesus. Now that I've got this good water, it tastes so good. Our natural impulse is now just, just fill me up, Lord. Just let me be satisfied. And yes, that's part of it. But that's not where Jesus goes with this. Look what he says in our text. He says, whoever believes in me won't just lay back and, and drink to their heart's content. 
Notice what Jesus says happens then to the thirsty who come to him and drink. Whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So something actually more satisfying happens to a person when they come thirsty to Jesus and drink. They get something better than just merely getting their thirst quenched. They actually now get to be used by Jesus to quench the thirst of others. That's what he says here. Out of you will flow rivers of living water. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't necessarily mean that you will live or we will live extravagantly, famously fruitful lives in service of our king, but it means that we will live ordinary lives, lives lived for the glory of God and the good of others, which actually results in abiding joy as opposed to just drinking for ourselves. So here's the question that I end with, and this isn't one of the four. This is just to apply it to our hearts. Are you... Are you thirsty? Are we thirsty? Now, you might classify this message as a kind of evangelistic message, a message for unbelievers. You might think, well, I, man, I, I wish somebody, so-and-so was here. I would hear this or would hear this text. Not that my sermon is so great. I'm not trying to say that. I know, I know it's not. But we tend to think, okay, man, this is, yeah, right, amen. But friends, this is for Christians too. Because we, we all are spiritual amnesiacs. We forget the source, the only source that can quench our thirst, and it is Christ. And we drink from this fountain for new life, and then we oftentimes go back to the broken and filthy cisterns of this world. And in our culture, and I'm not trying to make it sound like it's more difficult to be a Christian now than it was in previous generations, I think there can be a kind of, a kind of elitism, a kind of snobbery that we have when we look at people in the past and we think, oh, well, you know, they didn't have it as bad as we did. Well, I mean, you know, the Roman emperor is not skinning us and burning us in Rome, you know, to light the streets for Rome. So, that, so there's that. So it was a little harder to be a Christian maybe in late first century Rome. But, but let's just, for the sake of, you know, let's not just be above it all. We live now. And I do think that there are particular challenges for us now. And I think one of the wiles of the enemy for us now is that there are more obstacles, more inputs, maybe not more physically dangerous, but maybe more spiritually dangerous, broken fountains that we can tap into with the ease of a click of a mouse. And so, I think, with all humility, recognizing that our brothers and sisters in centuries past had their own challenges, that if we lived then, we would be just as frail to as they were then, I think that we live in an age of tremendous spiritual complexity where there are obstacles to thirst like we've never seen before. There is more spiritual junk food available to the average Christian than ever before. There are more 
just something we can kind of identify, spiritual unhealthy energy drinks that will rot out your teeth, spiritually speaking, than ever before. There is the broken well of social media that makes you, it, it not only is a broken well, it has this incredible ability to slowly and imperceptibly cultivate your thirst for unhealthy things. Friends, we all know this tug. There's this, there's this kind of science that wants to make you dependent on what the world thinks about you. And what then you get a picture of the world that you think somebody else is living in and you become strangely dependent on your ability to be a kind of voyeur and look at and judge or be jealous of them. And so there's this kind of broken two-way street when we're so exposed to each other's lives through all of these social media platforms where we're saying, somebody affirm me is the street that we want coming into us, and the street that we want going out of us is, or is going out of us, is, yeah, I'm judging that person because they're not nearly as pretty or as awesome as they think they are. And friends, what does this do to our hearts? As we combine it with sporadic gathering with the saints and meager intaking of the Lord's word, friends, friends, is it any surprise that sometimes we suffer from spiritual depression. And the call is, not just to the unbeliever who's never heard the gospel, the call is to Christians right now, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? C.S. Lewis, I think this is a big battle of our age. C.S. Lewis, the the great uh, British philosopher and lecturer, in the mid-1900s, wrote a very provocative short essay that I recommend to you all. It's called The Inner Ring. The Inner Ring, I-N-N-E-R. You can just Google it on the internet and find a copy, a free copy, of about a five or six page short lecture that C.S. Lewis gave in the mid-1900s at some university called The Inner Ring. And he says that Just about all people are governed by this desire to be part of this inner ring. Whatever it is, the military, you want to be kind of in the, you know, the in crowd, the people that just seem to be doing well. It's a group of stay-at-home moms. You want to just be, you know, you want to be one of the ones that seems to have it together. You know, your baby's eating kale and, you know, sleeping to Beethoven by the time he or she is three months old. You want to be a preacher. You want to be a preacher you know, you want to go to the little preaching conferences or the pastoral conferences where you, you talk about how your people are so faithful and you recite all the catechisms and man, all your people came back from COVID and we're doing this and we believe this doctrine. I mean, it's just, everybody's got their inner ring, this group, this sort of unstated, imperceptible, but clearly their circle that we all kind of want to be part of. And if we're part of this thing, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Because right standing 
good feelings about ourselves. We, we've long since left the fountain that we drank for the first time for salvation. We've kind of checked the Christian box. Okay, I got that down. But now let me be about the business of really making myself feel like I'm accepted, I'm fit in, and let me be part of whatever little inner ring it is. And everybody has an inner ring. Even the people who look down upon the people who think that, they say, oh, that person just wants to be in the inner ring. Well, you're actually part of an inner ring of people who recognize that other people are in the inner ring, so you just act like it's not a big deal to you. We're all part of it. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, just one little quote. He says, the desire to be inside the invisible line illustrates this rule. As long as you're governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You're trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left until you conquer the fear of being an outsider. An outsider, you will remain. So let's take Lewis's words and let's adapt them. Let's infuse them with what Jesus is saying here. That there's this desire to drink from acclaim, from likes on Instagram, from acceptance in the mommy group, from stats for a preacher, from success in the job, for more money, more sales, more this, more that, more everything, more acclaim, more, 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 give me more. And you peel that onion and it never satisfies. But Jesus is telling us that the only way you can conquer that insatiable thirst is to come to me again and again and again, again and again and again, not just one time for salvation, but every morning. Is anyone thirsty? Let him drink. The one who comes to me, out of him will flow. Out of her will flow rivers of living water. Cross point, let's come to Jesus. Let's come to Jesus and let's drink. And I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to take that and apply it to wherever you are. Let me pray now. Lord, do what I cannot do. Hit nooks and crannies. Peer into dark corners of the closets of our heart and show us where we are drinking from filthy fountains, Lord, and turn us from them and satisfy us afresh and free us, free us from this fear that the world doesn't love us and satisfy us with Christ. And don't just merely satisfy us, use us to be people who aren't always wanting and getting and accumulating, but people that are free from themselves but are flowing out with rivers of living water. And do it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.